Hey, RareCast listeners. Rare in the Square brings together rare disease innovators each year to forge partnerships and advance innovation. The event takes place in conjunction with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference and the Biotech Showcase. The annual financial conference is held in San Francisco that kick off the new year in biotech. While both of those events have gone virtual in 2021 because of the pandemic, Global Genes is partnering with the Biotech Showcase to create Rare Beyond the Square this year to highlight rare disease progress and innovation, share information, and facilitate partnering and networking among companies, investors, and rare disease communities. Tune into Rare Beyond the Square, January 11th through the 14th, 2021. You can register at globalgenes.org under the Events tab. Thanks. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. At the end of November, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Rhythm Pharmaceuticals Imsivri, the first therapy for chronic weight management in patients with certain genetic forms of obesity. The approval validates Rhythm's approach to target a specific biological pathway common to a number of these conditions. We spoke to David Meeker, CEO of Rhythm, about genetic obesities, the company's drug and sivery, and his plans to expand the use of it beyond the initial approved indications. Dave, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. We're going to talk about rare genetic obesities, Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, and its recently approved therapy, Imsivri. Let's start with rare genetic disorders of obesity. What are these and what do they include? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, one of the challenges uh, for obesity is that it's uh, <clears throat> one of those healthcare problems that's often viewed as a lifestyle, uh, personal choice uh, issue. Um, you simply need to uh, eat less or exercise more. And what increasingly, as with many diseases in medicine, we're learning today is that there's a strong genetic background. Um, we know in general obesity, uh, there's probably a polygenetic, multiple genetic factors that may contribute. But what uh, Rhythm is focused on is a small subset of those patients who have a single genetic defect, which is disproportionately driving uh, their, their obesity. And we can talk a little bit more about how that works, but the, the rare genetic obesity part of this is that subset where they have one gene that is, is playing a major role in determining you know, why they are obese. I imagine these can be difficult conditions to diagnose simply because a physician may not think to look for a genetic driver. What does it take for a doctor to say something genetic is going on? That is a great question. So the, uh, the big problem with rare diseases, rare genetic diseases in general, is they're rare. And we're all taught, we're all human. You, you don't necessarily think of the, uh, the unusual, you think of the common. And so 
Um, now with some rare diseases, rare genetic diseases, the presentation is such that you may not know what it is, but you know there's something wrong and you know that it's likely to have a genetic potential cause. Um, the challenge with this group of individuals is their obesity, to your point, does not distinguish itself with some rare exceptions. But the, the, the major group of patients we're focused on with these rare genetic uh, causes, um, they're presenting with obesity. Now, one of the clues is it starts at birth, meaning it's genetic and their tendency. And let me, let me explain briefly how, how, uh, what's behind their genetics. These genetic defects, they, they are occurring in a part of the brain or affect a part of the brain, the hypothalamus, which mediates our, interpret our feelings of hunger and also how fast we burn energy, if you will. And so if that pathway is broken through one of these genetic defects, you will be hungry all the time. And that's the problem. So these individuals will eat a full meal and they'll be hungry all the time. Um, a parent of a child will tell you that um, food control is a major issue for them. So even to the extent of having to lock food cabinets or the, or the refrigerator at night, um, you know, kids eating off other, other people's plates and the like, it's just, and it's, it's an extremely strong drive to eat that isn't shut off in the way, you know, a, a normal functioning pathway would allow it, it to be shut off. So your question is, um, what clues the physician in? One is an early onset, but of course, that's not such a, you know, distinguishing feature and won't necessarily cause you to think of it. Extreme hunger, highly subjective, right? We're all hungry. So how do you know that your hunger is really that much worse? If I miss a meal or two, I'm pretty hungry. So these are the challenges. And so you, you've highlighted the you know, this is the problem with the rare diseases, and this is a, the biggest problem probably for this group of individuals is they're going to see physicians who are not going to think of, wow, you could have a genetic cause of your obesity. Obesity obviously has comorbidities with it, but in the case of these conditions, is obesity a symptom or are there other ways they manifest themselves? Yeah, obesity is an outcome. Uh, I think it's really important, uh, and I feel pretty strongly, this is where society, I think, has, uh, and society includes medical professionals, we still view obesity as a choice. And, you know, the reality is, it is a disease. Um, you know, these people are not choosing to be obese. And, and also, this group of individuals often have extreme obesity. Um, we're, we're not talking about being overweight. Um, we're, we're talking about obesity that compromises your quality of life, compromises your ability to do what you know most of us would consider normal activities of daily living, comes with a psychological burning, uh, burden um, of, of course dealing with that kind of health problem and is associated with all the comorbidities that we know about, which may include cardiovascular disease, um, liver disease, and the like. Obesity has been a, a difficult indication for drug developers for a number of reasons. You're targeting a, a very specific forms of obesity. Given these are indications that are defined by specific genetic mutations, does this provide an opportunity that might not exist for obesity in a broader sense, or does it possibly suggest a path to treat obesity more broadly? Yeah, a good question. Um, 
the emphasis on the problems we're pursuing is rare genetic and they manifest with obesity. So there's a very specific biologic uh, underpinning here, You're, that pathway that we, where these genetic defects occur, that genetic defect causes it to be dysfunctional and the therapy we're working on has the, the ability to potentially bypass that defect and restore uh, your, your functioning, if you will. Um, so, uh, the normal obese meaning, and I don't know what normal obese meaning, I would call it obesity due to other causes. Presumably those individuals have an intact pathway here. So our therapy would not be helpful to them. What this effort does do that helps them is it's that opening of the door that says, you know what? There, is an, there are genetic underlying causes of obesity. Some of them might be treatable. And the first step in understanding whether they're treatable or not is we've got to increase the diagnosis, increase the testing overall, looking at genes that may be related to obesity. So the, the academic world, that tip of the iceberg is very focused on understanding this, but we need to spread this more broadly. And I think the progress a company like Rhythm is making is gonna you know, provide a significant um, step up, not just for the small group of patients who could benefit from, potentially benefit from a rhythm therapy, but that example, I think, is going to drive a much greater awareness of genetics in general um, for the obese population, which will be helpful. Rhythm is focused on the MC4R pathway. This is a, a pathway in the brain that regulates hunger. What happens in these genetic forms of obesity? And is there a common impairment to this pathway that occurs? You know, we have this cycle, right, where, you know, when we, we eat, we become full, we're no longer hungry. There's a bunch of signals that, that circle, right, throughout from our gut to our fat cells to the brain um, down this pathway that causes us when we haven't eaten to be hungry, when we do eat to turn off that hunger and to, you know, be satisfied. So, so this pathway is sitting in that circle, if you will, and... Um, and so when, it's, when it is broken, um, this constant hunger, our drug interacts with the receptor and by activating this receptor, it turns off what is chronically turned on in a broken situation, that feeling of hunger. There, there are a long list of indications you're pursuing. I didn't notice Prader-Willi syndrome on your list. Is there something different about Prader-Willi and the mechanism of that disorder that doesn't make it a candidate for your therapeutic approach? Yeah, Prader-Willi is a good example um, that highlights the complexity of obesity. So Prader-Willi has some biologic links um, with this pathway and they do um, manifest this early onset obesity and extreme hunger. But um, we have tested the drug in Prader-Willi and are very early uh, work has not suggested that um, our specific compound can um, solve the problem that the Prader-Willi uh, individual is facing. I can tell you that a negative result does not mean that it's not possible that it might help. It's, uh, we, we, we don't have the data today to say we know Prader-Willi has a clear link to this pathway. So it's a long way of saying, I, I think there's more work to be done in Prader-Willi, but it's not a simple, clean example. 
whereas some of the other genes we've tested have a much more direct association with the pathway. Well, what exactly is Insivri and how does it work? Yeah, so Insivri is a, a very, very small protein. Called, it's a peptide, which is the smaller version of a, of a protein. And it is given subcutaneously, so by a small needle injection daily, that this molecule, this, this small peptide, mimics the, the, call it a hormonal signal um, that is present in the brain. And when, these, when you have an individual with one of these genetic defects where the pathway is not working correctly, that hormonal signal is reduced. And so Imsivri, this small peptide, which mimics the signal that should be hitting that receptor, but isn't because of the genetic defects upstream from it, um, can bypass that and interact directly with the, re with the uh, receptor. One of the interesting things about this drug is that it not only affects appetite and fullness, but it actually increases the resting metabolism. Was that an expected effect? Yeah, so that's um, largely from animal studies, but it is, uh, I think it's, it's an observation which highlights the challenge that these individuals face. Um, they have a genetic defect it causes them to be hungry all the time. So yes, like many ind obese individuals, you go on a diet, you try to eat less, but you've got another factor which is working against you, which is not only are you hungry all the time, you're not burning food, spending energy at a normal rate, it's reduced. So you have a double penalty, if you will. And then we also know when you diet, that energy spend or that energy, you know, burn, if you will, is drops even lower. So um, it's it wasn't an unexpected. I mean, it was a known a known um, part of effect of this pathway, but I think it's an important understanding as to why a disruption in this pathway is so powerful in terms of driving individuals down this path of, you know, severe extreme obesity. And what's known about its safety and efficacy from studies that have been done to date? Yeah, so we've uh, we've treated on the order of 440 individuals, um, uh, some for shorter periods of times, so, uh, a small number of patients out as long as four years. Um, a significant number of those uh, of the original patients treated were in uh, normal volunteer or normal obese, if you will, um, obese individuals who do not have the same, this underlying genetic defect. Um, but with that experience, um, it's a rare disease, so it's, it's not as large as uh, experience as you have with many drugs. Um, what we see within Sivri is uh, it's a subcutaneously, so you get local uh, injection reactions, um, which are, are you know, quite common with, with that kind of drug. Um, not severe, um, you get a hyperpigmentation, which is a, a darkening of the skin. And that is uh, a side effect that happens because the this small incivery molecule that's interacting with one receptor also interacts with another receptor, which stimulates our melanocytes, which is when we go out in the sun, um, we get a release and, um, of melanin and we, and we darken, we tan um, or, or you get a hyperpigmentation. So um, that's a, a side effect that's seen uh, uh, quite uh, universally. Um, the other side effects, which are um, GI upset, so um, some nausea and vomiting um, happened um, 
mostly early on when you start the drug. Um, this is clearly your, your body's not used to having that stimulated. We can hypothesize why it is, but um, you know, there's a you know, fair number of individuals who have some nausea and, and a smaller number of some vomiting early on as we titrate the dose up. And what we've learned is if you slowly escalate, um, you know, that, that's important. Um, another uh, a factor is that because the populations we're studying are small and you can't, you don't have large placebo control groups. Um, if you're an obese individual, um, we know in that population, things like depression and suicidal ideation um, uh, can be prevalent and, and present um, as those individuals struggle with their disease. Um, so we saw depression um, you know, in our trial and um, it is included in our label for our approved drug. Uh, and and I, so we, we cannot exclude the possibility that our drug contributes to that, but it's with a small caveat that we know that as a background, um, that problem is present in this, this population and uh, therefore it's on the label and we just need to learn more about it. Some people who look at the data may not be overwhelmed by the weight loss that patients had on the drug, a 10% weight loss, I think in, in a year's time. How big an impact though did that drug have on the quality of life for patients? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think um, 10% doesn't seem like much, um, but if you're, uh, you know, a, a 200 kilogram individual and you, you lose 10% of your weight, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, 20 kilograms or 44 pounds. Um, you know, we had in our, our, one of our early genes treated um, individuals with POMC lost on average 25%, so uh, much greater. Um, but your question is, is 10% meaningful? So let's try to put that in context. Well, my, my question really is, you know, are there other quality of life measures that this had a, a dramatic effect that people might not understand just looking at raw numbers? Yeah, I, I think, um, so the, the answer is yes. Um, those uh, tools, un, unfortunately, are, were not as robust and, and, and specifically directed at this population. So I don't have that kind of black and white data that says, oh my God, their life was transformed. But um, universally, their, their quality of life was improved. So that's number one. Um, anecdotally, um, I can tell you, uh, I'll give you an anecdote of, of one of the kinds of things which just makes sense to me. We, we don't have proof that this is going along, but a, a child who's hungry all the time, reduce the hunger, they can suddenly pay attention in school. So they start you know, doing better. Um, and obviously for an adult patient, um, you know, the similar kinds of uh, effects could be seen. So, so the answer is yes, but, the, but we have much more to learn, I think, about that realm uh, as we go forward. People may, may know you through your career in rare disease, starting at Genzyme in 1994 as a, a medical director. You've dealt with diseases that kill children at young ages. What attracted you to rhythm? And was there any change in your thinking about rare disease, looking at issues of obesity as opposed to issues that might have much more dramatic and, and devastating effects at an early age on a child? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think, you know, what I learned over, you know, 20 years at Genzyme, and as you highlighted, um, Genzyme uh, was a company, um, it still is within, inside Sanofi, 
um, that had a number of rare disease products. And I would say the, you know, the classic, if you've seen one rare disease, you've seen one rare disease. They are each are very distinct for different reasons, but uh, there are commonalities and this, this, you know, the major commonality here is, and you highlighted it in your early questions, this idea that you are alone, you're just lost out there. Now, you know, some rare diseases, you're just, you know, nobody who looks like you and, you know, you're, you're, you feel, you know, very distinct and unusual in that sense and you're alone. Uh, in the obese world, there may be many, many people who obviously look like you, but they don't have your problem um, and they may not have your hunger drive. And most frustratingly, the system just has no ability to see you. And so, you know, one of the things that I find attractive about a rhythm is that this is a challenge. We have a real opportunity to transform the lives of certainly this group of patients who are affected this where this pathway, this MC4 pathway is affected. But as I said earlier, the work we are doing is going to create a much greater awareness about the possibility of underlying genetic defects in obesity in general. And I think, you know, when I'm a physician by training, as you said, one of the things I think as a medical, you know, world, as a healthcare practitioner, um, we need to change the practice of care here. We need to make it so that if you're an obese individual going in to see an, a, a physician and asking for help, you don't get the knee-jerk re, you know, reaction which says, you're, you're just need to be, um, um, you need to eat less and exercise more. And as you think about expanding the indications for Sivri and, and rolling it out commercially, how much of a challenge is it going to be to raise awareness with physicians and really get them thinking about potential genetic underlying causes? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think that's, you know, it's never easy. And I, I'll give you the example of we had one rare disease, which was uh, Genzyme's first product for a rare uh, disease product called Gaucher disease. And the, um, so that's now 30 years after its first approval. And late in my time at Genzyme, you know, we were still finding many, many patients who had lived with their disease for 10 or 20 years, who had seen multiple physicians and were unable to get a diagnosis. And so this diagnostic journey, which is the major, you know, challenge for many, I mean, it's, it's classic across rare diseases. You say, you know, how many physicians, how many specialists have you seen before you get a diagnosis? And it's many. Now that's for diseases where there's something physically obviously wrong. The challenge with the obese individual is they may not even try that diagnostic journey. They may see one physician who tells them, you know, eat less, exercise more, not knowing that something is there that they need to keep trying and keep, they've got to get that diagnosis. So they may give up. So there's some real challenges here, certainly for this group and uh, this problem. Is Rhythm doing anything to promote genetic testing? Yes. And so again, um, one of the challenges in a rare disease world is not only is there no awareness, there are no tools. And if there are no treatments, there's no reason to test. So you've got to work on the education side of the question, which says, look, you know, healthcare providers, you should be thinking about obesity, but that's about genetics and the underlying genetics of this obese presentation. 
but that's not enough. I got to give you a tool that says, okay, if I'm thinking of it, what do I do? So here's what you can do to test for it. And then ultimately, often what happens is the real shift, as you might expect, doesn't happen until you give people a reason to test, which is now there's a therapy. If there's no therapy and you're trying to get people to test, it's an academic exercise and the system doesn't want to pay for it and the doctors don't want to be bothered. But once you have a therapy, now it's suddenly like, okay, you should be testing because if they do have that problem, you can do something about it. David Meeker, Chairman, President, and CEO of Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. David, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.